check, 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 one, two, yes, yes, and yes, yes, y'all. Shouts to everybody who checked out last week's episode with the one and only, the Podfather, Chris Morrow. Listen, people hit me up all the time, okay? And I told this to people. People email me, DM me, everything all the time about podcasting, about wanting to learn how to grow a podcast, how to build a podcast, about advertisers, networks, building networks. You know, keep in mind, years ago, um, you know, before... People wanted to learn how to build a podcast. Now people want to learn how to build a network, okay? That's why this is the second time I sat down with the one and only Chris Morrow, co-founder of Loudspeakers Network, and really delved into the state of podcasting and what goes on. If you're one of those people that have reached out to me and maybe you didn't get enough information back by a DM, put that episode on your to-do list. And I'll tell you one thing. Shouts to everybody who did check it out. I mean, I got so many messages. I know Chris got so many messages about how they – you know, really enjoyed uh, the episode. Internet, that's, that's, that, that's what I want to try to do, to continue to give people a, 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 all different type of information in different walks of life, whether that be through actors, entrepreneurs, athletes, artists, producers, DJs, restaurateurs, or whatever it is. It, you know, it, it doesn't matter. It, it's, it's about trying to just gain the information, okay? If you keep an open mind, you'll be official. That's all that matters. Internet, listen, I always tell you, Okay, that I I love and appreciate when y'all check in. Open up your Twitter app at Premium Pete, at Premium Pete Show Instagram app. Same same thing. Okay, and what I always say is check in. Let me know where you're listening from. Last week we had Melbourne on and and and, and Tokyo international love uh, from London. Uh, who else was on? Uh, okay, Amsterdam. That's right. Uh, Boston, New York. Uh, you know, in the states. You know, we got of course Philadelphia, uh, San Francisco, the Bay Area on the check in. Who else? Washington. Listen, internets worldwide listen to the Premium Pete Show. I appreciate you. I always say if I ever did an episode, if I ever did something for you that you appreciated, you know what you could do for me? Tell a friend to tell a friend. Tell a friend to tell a friend about the Premium Pete Show. Tell them to dig in the catalog. If you know a certain episode that you think somebody could listen to that could inspire them or maybe help them or somebody's going through something and, and they really – they really don't see that you know light at the end of the tunnel, and you you could give them a story that somebody could get, be inspired by. Send that to them. Uplift your friends, okay? Don't be a selfish uh, piece. Of, okay, okay, I'm not gonna call you that, but don't be selfish, internet. Make sure you hit me up, like I said, at Premium P Show, at Premium P. Let me know where you're checking in from. Let me know what you're listening to. Hit me on the Twitter. Hit me on Instagram. Hit me on DM. And I've been doing this a lot, and I don't mind to do it. And if I didn't want to do it, I wouldn't say it, okay? If you're going through something, if you're a fellow father, uh, somebody who's been divorced, somebody who's been away, somebody that has certain issues with something or whatever it is, you're just going through something, need some advice, need somebody to uh, talk to, um, email me, thepremiumpeachshow at gmail.com, okay? Again, that's, that email is thepremiumpeachshow at gmail.com. Let me tell you, one thing I put up on Instagram the other day, at Premium Pete, I put up, uh, patience will open the doors you once thought were closed, okay? And it's true, okay? A lot of my mistakes in life have been not having patience. And ever since I started to have patience, life has got better for me. I want to shout out everybody who, uh, you know, I shared last week that it's seven plus years of me uh, being uh, smoke-free. I don't smoke no more. I smoke for 17 years. I quit over seven plus years ago, and everybody, you know, showed a lot of love. I appreciate that, and I will say uh, what I really think the result of that is is due to patience. I started to later in life have patience. So again, internet, listen, patience will open the doors 
you once thought were clothes. Okay, trust me when I tell you. Uh, now, okay, I can't wait to get to this episode. I tell you, the Premium Pete Show is going to bring you people from all walks of life. We always love hip hop, but hip hop is more than just music. Hip hop is being an entrepreneur. Hip hop is the way we walk, the way we talk, the way we dress. You know what I mean? Everything. Okay. So I've been coming at it with the entrepreneurs, the restaurant tours. You know, the artists, the athletes, the, you know, I'm going to keep on saying it. This week, let me tell you something. We have the co-founder of Sir Kensington's, Scott Norton. Now, if you don't know what Sir Kensington's is, okay, you probably have seen it in your supermarket, wherever you are. If it's Stop and Shop, Kroger's, Publix, Gelson's, um, Whole Foods, Target. It's the guy that looks like a little Monopoly guy. They started off as a ketchup brand, then went to mayonnaise, okay? And, and I think they have, like, now they have, like, 30 or 40 different type of styles of but internets, okay? This guy and him him and his partner started this brand, okay, out of because people said no one can compete with Heinz, that it couldn't be possible, okay? You understand? They told him it couldn't be possible. And allegedly, okay, allegedly, uh, well, well, they definitely sold to Unilever, but allegedly was for over $140 million. Internets, don't ever quit on your dreams. You understand? Let's get to this episode. Let's get ready to be inspired. Let's learn more and more, okay? With the one and only internets I present to you, the co-founder of Sir Kensington's Scott Norton episode of the Premium Pete Show. Let's get to it. Cheer. Yo, what's up, y'all? This is Fat Man Scoop, the undisputed voice of the club, the two-time Grammy Award winner. Let me make this official for you. Fat Man Scoop, Cork McClan, Internets. It's time to go with my dude, Premium Pete. Let's get focused. Let's go, Internets. Let's turn up one time, Premium Pete. Come on, everybody, get set. Let's go. It's the next episode. It's the Premium Pete Show. News, interviews, all of the info. Listen up. It's the Premium Pete Show. If you want the scoop in the low, down low, listen to the show cause Milk said so Fuck what you heard, better act like you know It's the Premium Pete Show Internet, welcome back to another episode of the Premium Pete Show Sitting here with a good guy, a good fellow, okay? Uh, entrepreneur, uh, I want to say a, 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 a trailblazer too um, Co-founder of Sir Kensington's, the, the one and only Scott Norton Scott, listen, I'm glad you're here for so many reasons but first of all, one of the main reasons I'm glad you're here is because you uh, are a game changer. And and if, for people listening who may not know what Sir Kensington's is, right? Let's take it from the top. Explain p- to people what the hell Sir Kensington's is. If they're, if they're listening, they're like, okay, what what is that? Oh, well, phenomenal. Thank you so much for, for hosting me. And for sure. Your words are, are too kind, Pete. Sure. Um, and I have to say that, you know, any game changing, any degree of game changing that we've done has been a team effort. Mm. And it's such an honor and a pleasure to lead and, and co-lead that sure, team. Sure, sure. Um, but Sir Kensington's, our mission is to bring integrity and charm to ordinary and overlooked food. Mm. And we're best known for making condiments with character. Mm-hmm. So it was about 10 years ago when we first had this realization that food in America was changing for the better. But condiments and specifically ketchup was really left behind. Mm. You know, everything in the supermarket was going organic. People were curious where things come from, came from and, and what happened once they put them in their bodies. Sure. People more focused on the environment, more focused on wellness. And yet this quintessential American condiment, ketchup, resembled an industrial product more than it resembled a food product. Mm. And so Mark, uh, my co-founder and I, we... We began 
on this quest to see if we could make ketchup that was in line with the way that we wanted to eat and in line with the way that America wanted to eat. And one thing led to another, and, and we've grown that into a company. And you, you mentioned Sir Kensington, right? And yeah. so what the, hell, what, what the hell does this British guy that you can probably picture in your head have to do with this condiment and, sure. and with food? And you know, we, we created a character that represents our personalities, uh, represents our values, and represents the sort of this quirk and the sense of history that we wanted to bring to it. And so Sir Kensington is, uh, he's a Victorian naturalist and he's a spice trader and he's, he's totally fictitious. So you, so you made him up. We made him up. You know, it's funny because, and I love stories like this and we're going down the road of telling so many different, uh, stories like this, but you know, they're all special and they're all one of a kind. Ketchup to anybody living, at least listening to this now. I mean, I don't know, maybe 200 years from now, it could be different if they listen to this. Heinz ketchup. Yep. Nobody knows anything else except for Heinz ketchup. Exactly. Now, I, I want to I go way back into you growing up, but for a second, let's take it where, how, did that scare you to create a ketchup brand knowing that, now don't get me wrong, I know there's Toyota, there's fucking, there's Nissan and there's Kia, and I'm sure they weren't thinking like, hey, there's something else. But I feel like what you were saying, ketchup has been so longly led by Heinz Ketchup. Mm-hmm. Has there any been any competition for them over the years besides that? There, I mean, there there has been small competition that's that's came and went, and and of course there are other brands that you'll see now. Uh, but it's there's there's no doubt that they have really defined the category, mm. and so they've defined the category by taste, they've defined the category by packaging, uh, and and by price point, and so everything that you see in the supermarket is basically uh, mimicking. What Heinz is, right? They're mimicking, they're copying the market leader. And I, I see businesses as fundamentally creative if you want to succeed, sure. not fundamentally competitive. Mm. That, that's kind of a big part of my philosophy. And what I saw was all these people trying to compete in ketchup with something they couldn't compete with. They could never be better than Heinz if they were going to just copy it and be like Heinz, only less so. And so we looked at other you know, leaders and winners. I mean, you look at what Richard Branson has done with Virgin, Mm -hmm. and he finds categories that have not served customers well, that don't necessarily have that love or that, that special polish. And he reimagines them, you know, and, and what we, what we wanted to do is we said, okay, if we're going to make something better, we can't just be like Heinz only less. So we can't just be like Heinz, but organic and kind of chunky. We actually had to be dramatically different to create instead of compete. And so we said, okay, when we launched, instead of being in plastic, let's be in glass, mm. which is more premium and the language of this high-end European preserve. And we said, instead of squeezing, let's be scooping. So we gave it a wide mouth jar and we mm. sort of suggested that it would be this, this thing that was dearly parceled out, you know, teaspoon by teaspoon. And then we thought about, from a brand perspective, if Heinz is really Americana, like the roadside diner, like to your point, like anyone who knows ketchup knows Heinz and it's ubiquitous in this country. Sure. Well, instead of American, why don't we be English, mm. right? It's exotic, but it's not so exotic or snooty that it's like, you know, French culinary. And, um, and so it feels familiar enough to people, but also has a little bit of a sense of, of discovery to it. Mm. And Sir Kensington is an explorer and we, we really wanted to tell a story through what we were doing and allow people to excite 
that that curiosity and and have um, you know that element of fiction on top of it, but something that felt really true. Where did where where did these ideas come from? Like meaning like where was it a meeting or was it you guys like where where did these brainstorming sessions go on? Man, you know some it's hard to know like where ideas where good ideas come from, right? And that we were in college at the time when we first started thinking about this. And, where was that? Uh, I was I was at Brown okay. uh, at the time, and and you know when your brain is relaxed, you have good creative ideas. And I think that one of the one of the challenges with creativity in business is that you know in in business and most work environments, we're actually not resting our brains enough, and we're constantly either in like an urgency mode or like a check email mode. Uh, and it's, it's hard to have long blocks of time to, to be creative and to just let ideas hit you. And it's really easy to see what competitors are doing or what consultants suggest and just copy that, but that's not really the route, you know, to, to success. And so a lot of these ideas come, you know, from, from seeing other great entrepreneurs and other great game changers and category killers and kind of taking those lessons and adapting them to what we're, what we were doing, like what Dyson did Mm -hmm. to the vacuum cleaner, completely reinventing it with industrial design or like Branson did with so many different categories. Uh, and then other, you know, there are great thinkers too, like Seth Godin is someone who wrote a fantastic book called the purple cow that talks about how being different, being dramatically different and making the product, the marketing and making the product, the promotion is how you need to to compete in and how you need to succeed in, in the era of uh, an era where everyone pretty much always already has what they need. Right. And it was also recognizing that food nourishes us, but it also entertains us. Mm. And so when we think about like what ketchup is supposed to do and what food period is supposed to do, it's not just about, especially for our generation, which has become a generation and a society obsessed with food. It's not just about something that is tastes exactly what you'd expect it to taste like and what you grew up with and, and has that function of putting ketchup on food. There's a place for that. But also people are looking for something that expresses their identity, right? Food is more and more part of people's identity. It's, it, it would be like a pair of sneakers or like a, like a pair of jeans. And uh, it also reflects someone's values and it, and it also reflects you know how people want to gather around a table with their friends, with their loved ones, with their family – and and bring those special moments to it. So mm. that's kind of how that's that's really what led us to saying we need to be dramatically different and we need to attract attention on shelf if we don't have a big marketing budget or reputation, uh we got to catch people's eye. You know, so many people have ideas, not many of them come to life. You know, you know, okay, so you know, and and we'll take it back to your childhood soon uh, because I want to go where see where some of that stems from, but more importantly you know, to start a ketchup uh, brand, because that's what you want to do from the beginning, not all the, because Sir Kensington now has over what, like 20 different? Yeah, yeah, over, yeah, over 25 products. I mean, they got Chipotle mayonnaise, yep. the, 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 Fabinez, which the, is yes. eggless mayo. The, and we're yeah. going to get to that too, because yeah. of the, there's a story about that. But I mean, they have yeah. so many things. Uh, um, the, the Dijon mustard, mm-hmm. the special sauce, um, and et cetera. But, you know, when you just started, how did you, you know, you have these ideas, like you said, you know, we make them in a glass jar or, you know, but how did you like find a, 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 you know, a manufacturer or how did you even know like who could put the labels out or who could, you know, co-pack this? Like, how, like you know what I mean? Yeah. So when you're, when you're thinking about 
a project or you're thinking about a business opportunity, it can be totally overwhelming to think about these details. And ideas are more or less a dime a dozen, and it's really execution that's that's worth anything to customers uh, or or anyone involved, really. And so I think the what we what we did, and you know, more or less accidentally, but my advocacy to anyone with an idea is at the beginning set your sights on a milestone that's achievable and that's in the short term and that's small to see if it has legs. Mm. So we never set out at the very beginning. We never said, oh, we're going to start a ketchup company and launch from day one and be racing towards stores. We actually said, okay, first and foremost, let's even see if we could make one that's better and more interesting than Heinz, right? And so our first kind of project was creating various different ketchups, six different ketchups. Not saying anyone was the best, right? Not not even... Uh, favoring one in particular, but we threw a tasting party for 30 of our friends where they came and they they did a blind tasting. They filled out a scorecard. And that allowed us to know, first of all, are any of these decent? Mm. And then which ones are actually compelling? Were these honest friends? Do you feel like that they were going to give you their honest opinion? Well, you know, w- with friends, you always will get a lot of love. <laughs> that's why we made it a blind tasting. Oh, really? Okay. So, so, okay. You know, so we didn't, I mean, we... We did have, you know, Heinz in that tasting. We also, we didn't tell anyone um, which one we liked, right? And so by putting them all out there, there are going to be ones that rise to the top and sure. ones that go to the bottom. But that's another great piece of advice is, you know, when you're, uh, when you're thinking about starting something, it's important to test it on people that don't have a, a dog in the fight, sure, right? That aren't sure. just your homies. Sure, and, sure. and also, it's important, even if they are your homies, you got to track whether or not they tell other people about it because if you have an idea and you tell them and then they go tell another friend about it then you probably have something on your hands but if they say oh that's awesome and they don't do anything with it mm, unlikely that it's going to get any kind of viral success you know uh, the name malcolm gladwell Mm. is uh, uh, is a pretty big name i think in your journey yes i think so i don't know can you tell me the story yeah so um in 2004 uh, years before we started, Malcolm Gladwell wrote this seminal piece in The New Yorker uh, called The Ketchup Conundrum. And in that, he posits that uh, with, with the help of a, with a researcher named Howard Moskowitz, that from a flavor perspective, Heinz is and can really be the only perfect ketchup. And he, he makes all these reasons and talks about why it's true in ketchup but not other food categories. And it's, it's worth reading this article. And um, I'm a huge fan of Malcolm Gladwell. I've always really loved his books and, and how sure. in particular he um, he focuses on how what we think is true, uh, it's often the contrary that's true. And it's the overlooked that needs to be reexamined. And I love that attitude of life of like taking things that are taken for granted and then really putting a microscope on them and l- looking at them from various directions. Now, when we were... Uh, when we were getting started, this is this article was one of the references that we looked at. It wasn't the primary impetus, but it was something that you know we had in mind. And on the last night, when we were we had done our tasting party, and we actually were scheduled, we scheduled another party where we were going to bottle these the ketchup by hand and put it into jars and 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 sell it to our friends along with tickets to this party that we were throwing. And we stayed up super late at night. I think it was probably like you know eleven p.m. or midnight. And I had this terrible toothache that I was putting off. And I uh, I said, finally, like, okay, I've got all these the ketchups in the bottles. My tooth is killing me. I'm going to go to the 
infirmary and, and I'm going to get this checked out. And they gave me a prescription for a painkiller. And I'm walking down, you know, in the middle of the night in Providence, Rhode Island to go to the, the, the pharmacy. And I see this, this kind of bouncy head of hair moving back and forth. And I realized like, I think that's Malcolm Gladwell walking towards me. <laughs> and uh, this man and this woman next to her, they walk by me and I, I stop him. And I say, excuse me, are, are you Malcolm Gladwell? And he goes, yes, I am. And I go, oh, I love your stuff, man. And I just keep moving. And then I think to myself, like, what the hell did I just do? Like, this was an opportunity. Like, I got to tell him about the ketchup. I got to invite him to the party. Uh, so the next day I, I, I opened up my email and I sent an email to like 10 different email addresses that could be Malcolm Gladwell. So like Malcolm Gladwell at yahoo.com at google.com at like, this was back in 2000. Sure, like, they're like, yeah, hotmail in there. Went to his website, like f- tried to figure out, tried to guess his email and, you know, like eight of them bounced and I got one back and he was, and he said, thanks for inviting me to the party. I'll be back in New York at that time, but I wish you the best of luck. And I've run into him a couple of times since then, but I, w- I would love to, and I'm a huge fan of his books, his podcasts and, um, the way that he thinks. So I want to, I want to spend some more time with him if I can. Do you think he would be amazed to know what you did with a ketchup brand? I mean, even though I look at Sir Kenson's as more than a ketchup brand, sure. but you know, I mean, it kind of went against the grain of what he wrote. Yeah, I know. And that's, I, that's why I'm so curious to talk to him. Right. I mean, why you, you should have fucking said it that day in the infirmary. <laughs> you were on those <laughs> well, pain but at, the, at the time though. Right. I didn't have anything to, really talk about sure, sure. i didn't I have know, any I success story. I, I didn't I have any he would have been like all right yeah he'd even like yeah i mean i'm sure he was like yeah good luck with that it's impossible i just wrote about that in the new yorker but now maybe maybe we can uh revisit you know you 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 guys made you started off with ketchup yep and when did you decide that you had to be more than ketchup and more there's two part of the question and why mm. um so a lot of this has to do with how retailers really think um, because as a, as a brand that makes food, our gatekeepers to the actual eaters, to the people that will enjoy our products are the retailers and restaurants as well, but, but more so retailers. And in order to have you know, a major presence and a focus and for, for retailers to really care about you, you've got to have a certain scale to what you're doing so that it makes sense for them. And to just have two products, a spicy ketchup and a classic ketchup, we were we were never going to be someone that could really b- break through. In beverage, it's a little bit easier to do it. But in food, they want to be able to have a line of items. They want to be able to promote all at once and do displays for barbecue season. And they want to, you know, they want to be able to take one meeting and have more opportunity in that one meeting. And so a, a big part of it was how do we make sure that we're a better partner to our retailers and also – that um, there was very similar dynamics in the market uh, for ketchup as there were for mayonnaise. So maybe it's not as extreme with mayo in terms of brand strength. But again, it was products that were out there that were very well known, but there wasn't a lot of differentiation. In many cases, the mayos out there had um, artificial preservatives in them Mm -hmm, and synthetic mm -hmm. preservatives in, in them. So there was a clear opportunity to clean up the label and do something better. And, um, and we also love mayo, uh, you know, and mayo is something that, you know, is classically this, uh, 
this delicious French food that has, in a lot of ways, like ketchup, fallen from grace. Is and it bigger than, not to cut you up, but is it bigger than ketchup mayonnaise? It is indeed, yeah. Yeah, yeah especially in, in grocery stores, mayo is a bigger market than, than ketchup. Yeah. So again, now, which a saying? lot of people are surprised by. Now, most the majority of our sales are actually, in comparison to ketchup, are mayo. So that's, that's crazy. That's where, so, and that, that's another, I think, important lesson is that what you start with, that might be where you get your credibility and that's how your story begins and that's where your reputation starts. But any business has the opportunity to innovate and to, to bring a new product to market that actually defines them, right? I mean, look, at, it took Apple, I don't know exactly, but, you know, roughly, what, uh, close to 30 years to come out with the iPhone, sure. right? And, and now that company is the iPhone company and everything revolves around the iPhone. And, uh, and, to, and I think there, you know, there are a lot of companies that, that have, that have done like that. And I think for any entrepreneur out there, anyone who's starting a business or that has a business, always recognize that you may have not yet made your defining product. Mm. And that's a powerful motivating factor as a leader. And it's also a powerful motivating, uh, concept for your team because it means that the sense of enormous possibility is all around the corner if you've got the imagination and you've got the drive. Mm. You know, you, you guys made vegan mayonnaise, mm-hmm. which to me is unheard of. Like, uh, what is <laughs> vegan mayonnaise? Like, yeah. like, and what I mean is because, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys uh, like kind of were the, on the forefront of that with vegan mayonnaise, mayonnaise right? Well, we... Uh, we definitely did some innovation in that space. The, the vegan mayo has been around for a while. The just to break it down, you know, very simply in food terms, mayo is an emulsification of eggs and oil, right? So the oil is is slowly whisked into the eggs uh, to give it to move it from just a, the you know a liquid of oil to a fluffy, delicious texture, and. Uh, Eggs are used as an emulsifier to give it that texture. There are other emulsifiers that you can use that aren't eggs. They're typically like processed soy protein or pea protein. And one of the things we say at Sir Kensington's is if it's not food, it doesn't belong in our food. Mm. And we we really try and think about our innovation process and our products as what would be in someone's home kitchen that they would actually put to use. That's the way that we think about delivering a minimally processed natural ingredient or natural uh, natural product is by thinking of how a home chef, right, or a restaurant chef would. And the taste that you'd get also from these vegan mayos that were made with those proteins, they weren't up to par for us. They weren't as good as what we thought a classic mayo should taste like. And... Um, so they and so they didn't deliver in the flavor and the texture was a little bit was a little bit off for us too, until we discovered this really interesting ingredient called aquafaba, mm. which is Latin for bean water. And aquafaba, if you've ever opened up a can of garbanzo beans or mm-hmm. chickpeas, you know that it's got this this liquid in it that's a little bit viscous, and if you pour it down the drain, it kind of bubbles. And there's a there's a community online of vegans that had discovered that it had these incredible emulsification properties. They were making meringues out of it primarily, icings and and other other foods and other dishes that would traditionally use egg, but of course because vegans don't eat egg, they were able to use this. And not only did it have this incredible property to it, but also it was something that in the home was went to waste because people typically wouldn't eat or drink the aquafaba. So it was it, 
it was a valuable thing that people were pouring down the drain. So we began our our research and our on our work in the test kitchen. And after many different iterations, we found that we could make a mayo that had this perfect texture using aquafaba as the emulsifier and um, using actually seaweed mm. as, really? as something to give it a savory flavor because egg yolks have a savory flavor, but uh, aquafaba on its own, just like soy pea protein, doesn't. And when it came time to think about how do we do this on a national scale – where the hell are you going to get aquafaba, right? Because you can't knock on people's doors and collect their chickpea remnants. And so with the help of uh, with the help of Whole Foods, we actually were put in touch with a hummus manufacturer that was making hummus by boiling chickpeas, but then as a natural course, pouring the aquafaba down the drain after they boiled these chickpeas. And we, when we launched that product, we actually were able to upcycle aquafaba that would have gone to waste and turn it into a rescue it and turn it into a food product that it's people like can actually eat. It's like a science project of it. I mean, it's, it's, uh, sci- I mean, science is definitely involved, right, to keep it safe, but ultimately it's a culinary project sure. and a creative project on a big scale. Now we've, we've actually moved away from, from that particular supplier as, as our scale has grown. Um, but at the same time, I hope that, you know, every communication we have and every jar of fabinets we sell, I love to think that there's education that we do on the side of that jar that helps people realize that you can actually use this thing that you used to throw away. Because mm. food waste, I mean, estimates are up to 40% of food that gets produced in America is wasted. Mm. Up to 5% of our drinkable water ends up in landfills mm. because of food waste in this country, right? And... um you know the the food system is incredibly complex and powerful and uh and it's definitely imperfect and so we try and think about with our products and with the education how do we move food forward and make a positive contribution there you know you you started sir kensington's uh you and your partner mark mm-hmm. i mean how how long was it just you and him like was it for a while before you hired somebody do you remember the first person you hired well, at the at the very beginning, we actually had uh, two other co-founders. Really? And I, yeah, there, and there were there was there well, were four of us, and they ultimately never joined full time, and so we're never really that involved operationally, which is just kind of you know how things go, and um, and early stages of a company, there's always it's it's always hard to know, you know, what people's are, are they in or are they out or or. Uh, it's always hard to like take a bet on that and know if it's if it makes sense to sort of devote your life's work to that. Sure, because you don't know what it could be. Yeah, you don't you don't know what it could be at all. And um, it was a big leap for me too, you know, to to do it. And uh, but Mark and I worked for uh, the business in earnest for about a year until we hired our a little more than a year until we hired our our first employee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, yeah. You, you, it's crazy because when you when you you know in this day and age, startups are like trendy. And there's so many different startups, and raising money is 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 something that comes along with startups. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's I just feel like the, there's some people who are really doing it or have done it well, and I consider Sir Kensington's to be one of them. I mean, how how do you even know? Like you know, because mind you, you graduate, and and I still want to go back to when you were young. We'll do that probably after the break. But you came from Brown University, right? Uh huh. 
your parents probably, I mean, I don't know what they what they thought, but you're like, yeah, I'm going to start this ketchup brand. They're probably like, uh, okay, you know, like, because again, who knows what it could be? For sure. Right? I mean, yeah, I think they thought it was a little bit crazy, but lucky for you know me, they, they definitely trusted me. Yeah, they believed in you. Yeah. And I think that's all that you, it's one, a special thing that you could do for your kid, you know, and, and sometimes we're very judgmental. A hundred percent. Believe in them. I know it's, 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 sometimes I hear myself, I hear my, my mother or father because our parents were very judgmental, you know, mm-hmm. when you look back, but I try mm-hmm. not to, but not going off a case. That's healthy that you're conscious of that. Yeah. And that you're intentional about it. Yeah. Because a lot of, you know, there are a lot of people that just, you know, continue the cycle and treat people how they were treated. And it takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of awareness to, to change, uh, based on what your environment was. Yeah. You know, my daughter's friend's mother um we're in a nail salon one day and uh she was telling me about her son and she was like i wish he would get a real job and i was like what what does he do and he's like he's a dj but there's no money in djing i said i have friends that make about 10 million dollars a year djing what how's that possible oh it is Mm -hmm. she said well i think he's gonna go to tokyo uh let him go you know, the, the I, I guess just people are judgmental, and I mean, it happens to the best of people, but I just think that, um, you know, it's funny, I'm still learning in life, as, as we all are. We all are, yeah. But um, if I could go back, um, I wouldn't want to go back, you know what I mean, because it's like too scary and crazy, <laughs> but if I could go back, I would probably fail a little bit more, just mm, because I think totally. kids are so scared to fail today. Yeah. My daughter, I worry how... They don't ever want to be, she don't ever want to be wrong. I said, it's okay to be wrong. It'll help you get to be right. Yeah. You know? That's but yeah, right. but I don't want to go off track. Uh, we, we were but this talking is about, the good stuff too. Yeah. You know? No, it we, is. We should, we should talk about yeah, that. Yeah, we, we will. Yeah. We're going to get to when we get back to uh, you growing up in uh, San Francisco, mm-hmm. which has uh, amazing food over there in San Francisco. Phenomenal, yeah. Um, but um, startup, mm-hmm. raising money. Yeah. What, what did you know about raising money? Um. Well, I, growing up in San Francisco and in Silicon Valley, I did have kind of a sense of it, right? Mm. And I grew up around the venture capital, venture-backed companies. By by no means was an expert, but I always, I did, you know, from from a very early age, I loved to build things. Mm. And Like what? If you look, well, like anything from Legos? skateboard ramps, tree houses, uh, Legos, absolutely, uh, you know, printing T-shirts, like all that kind of stuff. And what I realized was that if you like to make things, but you don't know how to sell things, then you end up with a lot of things, right? And and you don't get that those things out in culture. And so I understand, I understood from from a fairly early age that you could marry creativity and commerce together to create this flywheel. Mm-hmm. That influences culture and that it creates the growth of your ideas and the growth of, of yourself. And so I, I did, you know, I studied economics. So I did have kind of a sense for, uh, I could speak the language of finance and I understood, you know, how to, how to think about opportunities in a way that people could participate in them. And from, from upfront, you know, you knew as an entrepreneur what you were getting into. And they knew as an investor what they were getting into mm-hmm. and sort of thinking about the the end game from the beginning and thinking about what is it that these that investors would w- be excited about, want to participate in and and also that 
and a lot of people are afraid to raise money. They don't want to give up ownership. But the way I think about it is you want as many people, strategic people, invested in your success as For possible. Sure. For sure. Uh, and so, so that was an important part of, you know, how we grew and how we got mentorship and how we got customers. Uh, so I think that, you know, and again, like we're, we're, we, we were first time entrepreneurs and founders doing this. And of course we made mistakes as well. Um, do you remember some ones that were valuable or that taught you some things in terms of mistakes? Yeah. Um, you know, something, something really interesting that you brought up was like, if you could go back in your life, even if that would be crazy was you'd fail more. And I think that we uh, at, we went for a couple of years, like you know, raising a little bit of money and you know, being pretty pretty frugal with it and moving kind of slowly. And actually, looking back on it, I think that we, while this isn't like a mistake, quote unquote, right? Because everything everything works out for a reason, but or works out. But um, I think we probably would have had more conviction, and we probably would have gunned a little harder. And I think we would have we would have failed a little bit bigger and a little bit more quickly, even if it meant we, you know, raised more and burned some, through some more because uh, creating momentum is really important in this. So I think we would have probably done more faster. But again, that's, you know, now having done it for a couple of years, you have a sense that you can take on more. But when you're just starting, you know, you're learning and it's like drinking from a fire hose. Mm. Um, yeah. And then also we had we had a lot of individual investors right angel investors and and that's how we were able to put the rounds together but it's also a lot of people to manage sure, right sure and i think it you know it 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 taught us that it's it's good to have i think in general you know fewer more powerful investors rather than a really broad you know reach just because it's a lot to manage i mean i love them all but it's you know it's a lot of work but what it taught us and and one of the things i really have to hand to my partner mark about being so organized about this is the thing that investors value most, potentially even more than performance, is communication. Mm. So we on the dot, we were able to deliver at the end of every month a month update of what's the company doing, what's the growth look like, what's the operations look like, you know, a snapshot of the financials, um, updates, press we've gotten, what they can do to help. And I've, you know, I've invested in, in a couple of companies and the, the biggest advice that I give them is if you don't do anything else, communicate with all your investors on a timeline that, that they expect and set yourself up for consistency and keep them informed in good times and bad. Um, you know, think of yourself as like a little publication for them and, and, uh, and, and they will have trust in you if you do that. Versus waiting a long time, sending a random update, and then asking for more money, you mm-hmm. know, or saying that something didn't go as planned. So I think that communication, that's a big lesson that we learned is communica- communication skills are leadership skills. Uh, you know, definitely communication is key. You know, you mentioned before that in your first year, I think you said you hired your uh, first person mm-hmm. to work with you. Today, uh, 2018, how many uh, employees are with Sir Kensington's? We're, we have 35 people. Okay, nice. Yeah. Nice. yeah. It's an amazing team. It's, it, listen, it, it, it takes a while to build something like that. When you hear one employee to 35, mm-hmm. it's what makes the world go around. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But I want to get to, uh, you know, you growing up in San Francisco and a bunch of other stuff. Let's take a quick break. Internet's we're sitting here with the co-founder of Sir Kensington's entrepreneur, definitely a, 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 a condiment guru, okay? Scott Norton. <laughs> We'll be right back. 
Cheer. Hey, this is Josh Kesselman, the founder of Raw Rolling Papers, and you are listening to the one and only badass motherfucking Premium Pete Show. Cheer. <laughs> Internet, and we're back sitting here with Scott Norton, co-founder, Sir Kensington's. Listen, I said in the beginning of the episode I wanted to go back a little bit. Mm-hmm. You grew up in San Francisco. Mom and dad you grew up? Yep. What, yeah, what did mom do? What did dad do? So my... My parents were uh, filmmakers. Really? They were. My mother was a producer and my dad was a director. What, and they worked together. Would they meet on like a, a film or something they like that? They met on a TV set, yeah. Really? Yeah, they were. They met um, at, uh, I think they met either at uh, WJBZ in Boston or uh, a station in Baltimore. And they, they traveled around the country set, setting up this show called PM Magazine. And uh, they settled in San Francisco. And then when I was really young, we moved south to uh, the peninsula, which is kind of now known as Silicon Valley. So I was mm. born in San Francisco, but I really grew up uh, on the peninsula. Mm. Now, did they make any films that people would know or I would know? No, of? no. They they used to be in TV. Um, mm. And then they began to do uh, really like TV, uh, video and storytelling on behalf of companies. So mm. commercial films, but not consumer facing they would do a lot in technology in pharmaceuticals life sciences um, other big companies that want to communicate something internally or to shareholders or to regulators or sales forces stuff like that but it rubbed off on me a lot so at my core i'm a storyteller and i think that you know my my parents my mother uh was i would say the more entrepreneurial of the two and my father was probably the more creative of the two and so I got that sort of hustle from my mom, um, and I got the the creative bent from my dad. And so, you know, they would have camera equipment, and they would occasionally, like, have shoots in the house. And so I kind of grew up around it and picked up a camera when I was, you know, early and maybe end of middle school, early high school. And I just – I learned how to shoot. I learned how to edit. I learned um, – Photoshop and Illustrator to do titles and After Effects and and I would I would make little movies and I and I I loved it I adored it. Now, did you want to do? Obviously, you just you know somewhat said it, but yeah. did you want to do it because it was around the house? You you weren't like all right, no, that's just regular cameras they're doing like and go about your kid business like so because that's important what you say uh, not only for yourself just knowing a journey, but more importantly. For people even listening, like, you know, to do that around their kids, you know what I mean? And necessarily doesn't have to be a camera. Yeah. It could be a piano. It could be uh, whatever it could be. But that's that's powerful that what they had around doing their regular life job, their livelihood. Yeah. Inspired you to kind of pick up, you know, a camera de- and be creative. It definitely did. Yeah, it definitely did. And I also think, though, that, you know... Film and, vi- and television, video is cool. You know, it's like being able to tell stories like that, being able to produce videos. I mean, I think the, some of the greatest cultural figures of our time are either directors, actors, you know, producers, writers. And so I think that the storyteller has a really special place in society. And I think that what, you know, what video represents is this intersection between storytelling that's super intimate and the scale of technology, which is incredibly powerful and broad. And this was way, way before YouTube, right? Or even before Facebook or anything like that. But I started as a kid um, 
taking a lot of photos at parties, taking pictures, because I didn't drink in high school. So I was always the designated driver, and I never had a drink in my hand, but I always had a camera in my hand. And I started putting up photos on my own website of parties, and people fell in love with it. They mm. freaked out, you know, because it was like this kind of intimate experience. It was it was behind closed doors. It was somewhat illicit. But at the time, the Internet felt kind of private, right? Because this sure. was before social media. And, um, and it was really interesting to see that grow. And actually, it was the first time that I really ever felt the power of the scale of media and storytelling. Uh, and feeling like I was kind of like at the center of this this media world of my high school, which was which was pretty wild. And that's dope to hear. You know, you, you think of a young kid that you were at that time to where you are now today. Mm-hmm. Is is this where? I, I mean, is this where you pictured you be? I had no, I had no idea. You know, I had, I had no idea where I would be. I think that um, growing up, I always. And this is probably an ego thing, but growing up, I always knew that I wanted to build something of significance, mm. you know, and I don't, I don't know if it was for like the recognition of others. Cause I don't, I don't think it was, I think it was like, we are living in such an incredible time to be alive. And I think that I have a lot of creative energy and I wanted to, to channel that and to build something. And again, like I love building something. I learn, I love the experience of learning something by building. Mm. And, and I want to encourage other people to do the same because I think that we all have creativity in us and we all have this creative energy and curiosity that actually the world needs and that we can harness and we can put to work. Mm. So I never, I mean, I had no idea where I would end up. Obviously, I certainly never thought I'd be in the food business or in the ketchup business. You know, I did for a while think that I wanted to make movies. Um, but now I'm I'm kind of going back to recognizing that it's important for me to be in touch, actually, with my 15-year-old self. And my really? 16, uh, yeah, absolutely. So can we actually see some film maybe possible <laughs> coming? Is that is something that can happen? Uh, we are, yeah, we are, we're thinking more and more at, at, at Sir Kensington's about how do we not produce just kind of con and marketing content to sell a product, but really marketing content to introduce our values and to introduce our mm. mission and mm. to tell a deeper story. Mm. And so, uh, definitely watch this space. We've got things in the works that I think could, could stand on their own as exciting entertainment and, and also bring people deeper into the world of food bring people deeper into the entrepreneurial process and uh, and and be really hilarious at the same time. You know, I think the Sir Kensington's character is um, starting to become more recognizable. Uh, you know, people may not say Sir Kensington's or maybe they know of it or maybe they don't know of it, but they definitely know the logo. Yeah, what the guy looks like. You know, it's funny because I think of we're in a day and age where you want people, the brand identity to be so important. Mm-hmm. You know, my kid, even though I don't eat McDonald's anymore, we do get them happy meals and stuff. Like, but, you know, if like um, with apples and apple juice and et cetera, loves a toy. They've, they've cleaned up a lot since I was yes. a kid. <laughs> but but when we drive by, he's three years old. McDonald's. Uh-huh. He knows that. Quickly they know. Yeah. They're you know, good you at think that. about it. Toys R Us is amazing. And it's amazing that it's gone. But they never really marketed Jeffrey as they should have. And what I mean by that is that character could have been so much more. Totally. That character could have been like an Elmo. Yeah. That character could have been, um, you know, 
like a, uh, I don't want to say Barney, but, but you know, sure. but, but yeah. it could have been. Iconic. Yes. Yeah. And it wasn't. No. You yeah. know, and the reason why I want to tell you this is even before Toys R Us was closing, about last year, I went into Toys R Us with my son and Jeffrey was there. And it was just a big giraffe to him. He was like, who, I mean, who's, they, who the fuck is this? <laughs> now, he didn't tell me that. He didn't say, yeah. you, you know, but honestly, it was nothing special to him. Because where does he see him? Right, yeah. It w- wouldn't have been exposed to him. Why wasn't there... There could have been a Jeffrey cartoon. You got it. Yeah, and that that is the brilliance, for instance, of the Disney business model or the George Lucas business model, right? Mm. George Lucas, when he went and when he sold uh, 20th Century Fox, the concept for Star Wars, you know, he sold him the script and, and the rights to do these movies... But he held on to the merchandising rights, and that wasn't a big deal for them. But on top of that, he was able to create action figures and lunchboxes and all and Halloween costumes. And now that is actually bigger as a franchise than the entertainment properties themselves. But they, the important part is that it's a virtuous cycle. And when Disney bought Marvel, they recognized that, hey, here's this incredible storytelling, characters, intellectual property that aren't activated in theme parks. They're not activated in movies. They're not activated in music. They're not activated in all these places where they can be in, in merchandising and popular culture. And so when you put that into the Disney universe, the value is incredible. Mm. And so well, one of the really important flywheels of our business from day one was make sure, we made sure that the product was well-represented in leading restaurants, uh, partnering with chefs, so that it would create a place where people would really discover Sir Kensington's in the theater of food and know about it when they went to the grocery store. And you had a channel there that was creating visibility through these really authentic partnerships with great chefs. And that was creating awareness that was then building the sales in other channels. And you'd have working with, for instance, Whole Foods Mm -hmm. or working with Kroger gave us a legitimacy that a chef or a restaurant would know that people would actually be familiar with this, like it, have it in their home, and we could show them our rankings and our really strong sales to know that it wasn't some random thing that they were putting off on their customers. So you want to, in business, you want to find these virtuous cycles where there's a flywheel and one piece feeds another piece. And I think that in the entertainment business, they have have really strong cycles built in with the characters, you know, Disney, for instance, George Lucas, and um, uh, you know, Amazon is known, again, famously for doing this and really being maniacal about it of all the different components of the Amazon ecosystem feeding into each other. But that's you always want to look for opportunities in business where one plus one equals three. Mm, mm. Ex- explain that real quick. I know, you, I know you just put it yeah. there, but one plus one equals three. Explain that real yeah, quick. Yeah, well, it, it means if you could – if we could think about um, – the sales from one channel or from one line, uh, if you only think of that as what is the, the sales benefit, right, that, that's created in terms of revenue, you're forgetting how much of a, of a marketing halo it might create and how much of a, an association or reputation it might build for you that can actually be worth more to, to accomplish another goal of yours or to do something else in another channel. And so not all customers are, are created equal in terms of the reputation that they provide or, and, uh, and not in terms of the visibility that they provide. So you want to find opportunities to kind of plug 
these different models in together, right? Whereas, like, for instance, like, if George Lucas were to just create Luke Skywalker as a character to put on a lunchbox, no one would care, sure. right? And if and if he does, if he if it was just the movie, then you wouldn't have the the cultural relevance to create an opportunity with the lunchboxes and be able to 30 years later do another line of movies because all the while it was still existing in culture and still going existing in the physical world. Uh, of course the movies were great, but I think that these these flywheels are really important to think about in business. No, for sure. You know, I want to go over for people who's listening, Sir Kensington's the brand. We got let's go let's go let's go over everything. Sure. We got ketchup Yep. We got spicy jalapeno ketchup. Yep, exactly. We got, go ahead. We got. I mean, there's a, there's yeah, a lot. Let's go, yeah. go over some. Yeah, we got, we got. Uh, Chipotle mayonnaise. We got Chipotle mayonnaise. We have a classic mayonnaise. Avocado oil mayonnaise. Mm-hmm. Uh, we even make an organic classic mayonnaise. With sunflower oil or something like that. that it? It's organic sunflower oil. Yeah. yeah. Um, we make um, mustard. So we make a yellow mustard. We make a honey mustard. We make a Dijon mustard. We make a uh, spicy brown mustard, which I know is one of your yep, favorites. Yep, for the one of my favorites too. Yep. Uh, we make a Dijonese, which is like a mixture between a mustard and a mayonnaise. It's kind of creamy. And then we have uh, special sauce. Special sauce. What is made you it? make the special sauce? Well, special sauce is um, it was one of those things that's in people's consciousness and in their minds from their experience at restaurants, right? So if you go to Shake Shack, there's Shack sauce. Um, in and out has their spread. McDonald's has their special sauce. And people love that, but you can't really find that in grocery stores. So we wanted to create this, you know, thing that people know culinarily, but but want to experience again with clean ingredients in uh, a context that they can eat it at home. So that was the thinking behind that. And that that's uh that's phenomenal for us. People people love that product. Is is that one of the big sellers? Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah, definitely. And then we we just came out with a line of ranch dressings as well. Mm-hmm. So we've got uh, a classic ranch and then a buffalo ranch. Mm. Um, we've got a an avocado ranch and then we also have a pizza ranch. What? Which I want you to try. Yeah. Now, now it's got the same. It, it's got the same seasonings that you'd find in a pizza pizzeria. So it's got oregano in it. It's got a little bit of fennel. Uh, it's got red pepper flakes and then. It's dairy free, so instead of Parmesan, we use nutritional yeast. Mm-hmm. I got to check this out. Yeah, you're gonna love it. But I, I wanted you to run it down because I want internet. You know, people. I feel like we're living a world where people get in where they fit in, and I think you guys have. Tell me what that means. Well, I like that. I like that. Yeah. You turn it around. Okay. <laughs> so you know, sometimes we may say like, "Oh, uh, you know, ketchup," and they're like, "Okay, I don't, I don't mess with ketchup," mm. and and want to walk out the door. Hold up one second. Don't walk out the door yet. Maybe something we're saying here is something that you fuck with. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want you to go check it out because yeah. I believe in the brand. Yeah. I believe in the brand. And I think that some, like, I feel like it's, it's, it's wide enough for somebody to find something they like. You want to have as many discovery points as possible. Sure. Right? Because someone might say, I don't do ketchup. And so they'll never try your ketchup unless they first try the chipotle mayonnaise. And they go, oh, man, that's that's the best chipotle mayonnaise I've ever had. Maybe sure. the ketchup is actually worth trying. Sure. You know, you win a little bit of trust and then people come into the rest of the products that we make. So that that is very important. What was the first store you ever got into? First store was, I would say the first the first store of note was Dean and DeLuca. Nice. 
Yeah. How, how does something like that happen? That, I mean, we were really lucky to have someone that was more or less like a forager for them discover us uh, through a friend and at the Fancy Food Show, which is a big trade show where mm-hmm. all the different food companies that do premium and specialty products kind of show their wares. And she took a liking to us and was able to really be a, an advocate for us, get behind us. And that was that was a really important moment for us. Mm-hmm. Now, and also, I mean, Murray's Cheese was another really amazing early one that was super strong for us. Uh, and, you know, at that point, we were just, we were like delivering product via UPS. We didn't even have any <laughs> distributors it's, or delivering it by hand, you know? And I, I, I love that. I mean, I love doing the demos, you know, going to these random stores that no one had ever heard of and, and uh, doing a demo there and, you know, actually having the experience of, of sure. talking to people. Sure. Because seeing if their you response. don't do that, then you will never be able to listen to customers and scale. Yeah. You know, what about Whole Foods? How did, how did that happen? Was that your biggest one, the first big, big one? Yeah. That, well, that Williams-Sonoma um, okay. was, was also big. and, and um, But Whole Foods, you know, retailers have a process. Like they have a period of time where they review new products in a certain category. And then a few months later, they'll tell you if you got in or not. And then a few months later, they'll actually reset the shelves. And they only do that per category about once a year. So we had to, you know, go through the process, do the application. You know, it's like applying for college or something like that with all the, <laughs> all the, all the work, uh, presentations and, uh, you know, f- forms and things like that. And that that is what allowed us to get in there. And again, it, you know, a lot of it is through um, having a compelling product, but it's also making sure that you're organized and that you're sending messages to the right people. When did you realize... It's a process. It's yeah, a very it is, long process. It's, it's, good things are a process, yeah. man. Yeah. You know, big things. Like you said, you want to make a significant change. You yeah. Know, or you want to be involved in something. Yeah. That's a process. It's a process. And right now, it's what's very interesting is how the internet is changing so much about how to get a product to market. Mm-hmm. Now, it do, not every product works on e-commerce and online for a number of different reasons. But if you have the right fit... You can actually, you don't necessarily need to go through that retailer process, right? You can set up your own website or you can set up a Kickstarter. You can set up your own Amazon seller page and you can start whipping things up and selling things on at any, uh, at any time scale you sure. want. Harder to get scale and it's harder to bring people, you know, to actually treat it as a destination. But if you really solve a problem and you have something really interesting, the internet has never, you know, it's never been as as viable a channel for products as it is now. When did, when did you get to a point where you were like, holy shit, we're, we're taking off. Do you remember? Did you, did you even embrace that moment? It's, it's real, it's really hard to, to get that kind of emotional perspective. Cause I felt like it's always like, it was like never enough, you know? And then they're all, it was always simultaneously like, Oh my God, I can't believe we've gotten here. You know, and there's so much gratitude to it. I will say that I would like probably for the first two, three years in my head, I was like, yeah, but we're still probably going to fail. You know, we're still probably going to fail. And I don't I don't think that's healthy, but it was natural for me. And then and then at some point, I think when we really started to, you know, when we came out with the mayonnaise and we started to see the growth that that created and the fact that that worked for us. That's when I was like, okay, this thing is not going to zero. Mm. You know, we're going to have something. Sure, there. sure. You know, h- how hard is it to, like, keep your recipes hidden? 
You know, it's funny, but uh, I saw something somewhere that said Coca-Cola had their recipe somewhere in a private room yeah. that only three people were allowed access to. Uh, what lens do you go to keep your recipe hidden? Yeah, so my well, our recipes are a trade secret. At the same time, I don't think that if we were to release those recipes, we'd be in trouble. Mm. And here's why. is because what's the product itself is important. But there's so much other complexity that goes into, one, actually making the product, and then, two, the brand, the reputation, marketing, communicating, and selling the product. And if you were – if you're a decent chef, you could reverse engineer our ingredients and you, mm. could re- you could reverse engineer our taste and all that kind of stuff. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you have a ticket to our customers and a ticket to that success because – Otherwise, what is Sir Kensington's worth and what does it mean, right? Sure. And so we, so you, you do very, it's very important to contractually own and protect that property. And with the manufacturing partners we have, they're, they're only allowed to make that recipe for us. They can't make it for themselves or for anyone else. And that's, of course, under, you know, uh, contract. But we don't do anything crazy like, you know, lock and key. Yeah, I'm sure it's, you had... it's probably for Coca-Cola. I mean, real. I mean, I'm sure they're paranoid, et cetera, et cetera. But it's probably more of a great story than anything. I wonder who those three people are. That's who I want. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. Like, like, how were you? Act, how are you granted access to that room? You yeah. know, what I mean, <laughs> it's it's just it's just curiosity, man. Yeah. You know, um, you know, recently, you guys um, have were able to be acquired by a monster called Unilever, right? Well, they're a big company. Yeah. yeah. I mean, a monster, right? Yeah. Would you say that? Would a you gentle say? monster. Yeah, yeah. The story, before we even get into that, and, and, and what's the correct pronunciation? Unilever, right? Uh, Unilever. Unilever. Yeah, Unilever. I want to make sure, because people will make fun of me, but I pronounce things sometimes wrong. No, it's. I mean, it's you know, it's a global company. I've heard it in probably 100 different accents. Yeah. So, so the, the, the before we get into them acquiring you, which is amazing for somebody who started this company having no idea what it could be um the story that i love is that supposedly heinz was supposed to buy unilever for like i don't know like billions of dollars and then yeah like like i think it was 143 billion dollars what the fuck like that yeah and 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 explain what happened and they just turn around and well so uh I mean, this is also we're we're living in a, a, a fascinating time economically because uh, interest rates are cheap, so people can borrow money to buy companies, right, and to cre- and to create leverage, and they can do that in tremendous scale. And also, uh, food companies in America have the big ones, at least, have generally stagnated in terms of growth because millennials and people these days. Um, young people, especially that are defining the market, they have tastes that are more geared towards natural products and local products and niche things and, you know, global foods or quote unquote ethnic foods that are not necessarily sold by these big companies. Sure. And so when you when you have companies like that that aren't growing as aggressively, then the way that the way that companies create growth is by buying other companies. And uh, so there's a. Um, there's a big private equity group that that controls and has rolled up and combined Kraft and Heinz, and they're acquisitive. They want to buy more companies, and so they made a bid to acquire Unilever, um, 
and uh, it was ultimately rebuffed. And Unilever was able to essentially convince their shareholders, uh, rightfully so, that it was better off in the hands of the current management than it would be in the hands of this future buyer. Could you let people know who, what does Unilever own? Like, don't they own like Hellman's mayonnaise? They do. Who yeah, else? They, they own Hellman's mayonnaise. They own Dove soap. Wow. Um, okay. They own, uh, they own Seventh Generation. Mm. Which is obviously you know green cleaning products. Mm-hmm. They own Ben and Jerry's. Mm. Look at holy shit! Yeah, and they've owned them for close to twenty years now. It's a monster. They've owned uh, they own Briar's ice cream. They own Talenti Gelato. They they have a big ice cream business. They own Magnum. If you've ever had those, you know yep. bars, they're now pints. And um, uh, you know Nor soup stock. You know K N O R sure. that soup stock that is just ubiquitous. That's and that's one of their biggest brands globally. And and you don't you don't even. Over 60% of their sales actually come from emerging markets outside of U.S. and Europe. Mm. And they're a, they're a company with over uh, 120, over 140 years of heritage um, as a company that actually started in England in the late 1800s with a new way to make soap. A way to make soap from, instead of using beef tallow and animal fats, they were able to create a new process for making soap from plant oils which was actually more hygienic and safer. And they uh, and this was at a time where health and, um, you know, understanding of bacteria was actually quite nascent. And at that time, you know, not all the doctors even in Europe would even wash their hands. And so they were able to educate about bacteria and about cleanliness and about safety at the same time that they were able to grow a business on the back of this innovative product. And they were able to do so in a way that really treated their employees right, building a town for them, building, um, you know, houses, schools, medical facilities for them when most companies had sweatshops, sure. right, and child labor. And so they, you know, from the very beginning have uh, have been about what does it mean to do good business and and govern your business, not just with business acumen, but actually with a conscience. And for us, you know, in the commitment they that they have made to to companies like Ben and Jerry's and to Seventh Generation, uh, when when the, the time came and when we began to talk to them, that's actually why we um, had any confidence uh, or excitement about the partnership was because we knew that this was a company that was going to treat the legacy right and that wasn't going to just see this as something that was transactional, sure, not just as a product to have the sales maximized and the the cost minimized, but actually something that literally becomes part of people's bodies. Sure. Right? Respect the integrity. Yeah, respect the integrity of it. And integrity, I mean, that is that that's really the key word here. Yeah. You know, how does that even happen? Like what did you get? An email? Like like I say, hey, we're looking to like how does that even happen? For somebody like because mind you, there's people listening that may have small you know, on a small uh, scale uh, you know, different companies or different things like you know, you're running your company. You're in multiple stores, uh, a lot of stores all over the world. Yeah, you're living your life, and then, and yeah, at the time, you know, the our business was not for sale, right? We weren't we weren't planning to sell the business at that point, and um, we really had our heads down, and we were growing it, and we we took a really just an informational meeting with them, kind of a social meeting to to get to know them, not thinking that it would turn into anything that was interesting. And um, and then that's when we really started learning about what it is, what they cared about, how they really governed their business by values, um, the work that they had done with these other great brands, 
and that with a focus on sustainability and a, and a focus on wellness and um and and they developed over time an interest in us and really you know they said uh call us when you want a megaphone right when you want to take what you do which is amazing and relatively small and you want to tell the world about it and you want it to grow then you know perhaps we can help with that and so over time we you know we got to know them more and more and ultimately recognize that it was the right partner and probably the only partner that frankly would be a good uh, long-term home for our business and treat it right. And, um, you know, and, and, and so the time was right and the partner was right. And that's how we made the decision. How how long does it take to make a decision like that? Mm. There's no set. I mean, every business is different, right? Every business culture is different and every business is different. And so, if you have a business of scale and you run a process through an investment bank or something like that, then you set it on a schedule. But, you know, maybe you're dealing with a Japanese or Korean company that's going to want to kick the tires for a year and a half, right? Or maybe you're dealing with a high-pressure tech company situation where something gets, you know, moved in uh, a month and a half. Uh, so, you know, for us, it was in between those those two periods of time. Um, but, uh, it, there's no there's no set rules for it, no set date. Mm-hmm. You know, you guys are also aren't you in hotels and mm-hmm. and yeah. or first class. Uh, That's right. On- yeah. Well, we're in, we're in, on United Airlines, so any domestic flight you take on United, uh, you can get a burger with Sir Kensington's. What? Uh, yeah. How the fuck yeah. does that happen? Uh, there, they were looking for a New York focused uh, condiment, actually, which you know we're obviously here local in New York, and. Um, you know, they built this burger around it and it was, you know, opportunities come to you and then out of the, out of the blue sometimes. And then with our killer team, we are able to make, de- develop those relationships and, um, you know, grow the partnership mm. and hotels are indeed an important place for us, you know, from Chateau Marmont in LA where a lot of people discover it to, you know, the peninsula here in New York, um, SLS and Vegas, you know, um, uh, Miami, um, uh, Great, great places. And then you're also available in like Publix, right? Yeah. yeah. Kroger's. Grocery stores. And, and yeah. And then, nationwide? Uh, well, for retailers that are nationwide, yeah, nationwide. Yeah. And we are, uh, we just actually began working with Target and Walmart. And mm, we're not nice. nationwide there, but we are in a, we you know, a significant, significant selection of their, you know, their higher end stores. You know, I don't know what you could go over as far as um, money wise, but the Chicago Tribune uh, reported that Unilever. Uh, bought you guys for a hundred and forty million dollars. I mean, you know, it, the only thing I have to say about that is, from a kid who picked up a video camera and was filming in his parents' house, you know, making videos and and editing and and just just you know just somebody who probably was just trying to figure out where he wanted in life. And you said something to me that really stuck out. You said that you wanted to be involved in something that made a significant mark. Mm. Like something that was that that could stand its test of time. That's what I took from it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not always about money, but something like that is powerful. Well, yeah, I mean, we you know we didn't disclose the terms yeah. of the deal, so I can't comment sure, sure. on that. Sure, it's okay. At the same time, you know, money is just one measure of impact and scale. Sure. And I have to say, we're still just getting started. Sure. You know, and I think that that it that, that's that that metric is one way to measure it, but. Our actual customers wouldn't care about that number, sure, right? Sure. And what's what's important for us is actually 
how people are experiencing this, how they're telling the story, and what how we can educate and entertain and bring people into this greater world of food sure. and bring, bring them into the superpowers of food. I do believe the people who were messing with your brand from the beginning to see you guys sold for a significant th- amount actually th- probably care about I actually, that. Yeah, I think that for, for the early adopters and the people that are like really part of the tribe— they were. They're probably like, really, look at these guys. Yeah, thrilled, yeah. thrilled, and and um, and it's great to continue to to have their support. But I had no. I mean, I had no. Yeah, I had no idea that I would I would grow a business like this, and um, and I, I feel incredibly grateful for all the people that made it happen throughout the way because it's frankly not about my talent. You know, sure. I'm I'm just a conduit, and and at best, I'm a B plus listener, sure. right? Trying to be an A minus listener, and that's uh, that's really the skill that and. Uh, teamwork, 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 teamwork makes the dream work. Being able to organize your time and stay focused on your goals, right? That's what it takes. You know, uh, over the years, have you ever had any mentors or coaches? That, I have, uh, yeah, yeah. I've had I've had a couple of great coaches and mentors. Actually, uh, a couple years ago, I hired a coach, a leadership coach. Really? Yeah, and uh, was recommended to me by one of the founders of Sweetgreen, mm-hmm. who had a really really good experience with him. And um, you know, he was he was really perfect for me. I think it's, it's super important as I think if you're, you know, leader or really anyone to have someone that you can open up to and that can coach you is incredibly important. And for me, that happened to be a coach. I think for others, it's important to have the, the ears of friends and, and, and that, and opening up to people is something that is, uh, it takes a little bit of vulnerability, but it's important to do. I've also had like a yogi, you know, someone that, mm-hmm. you know, mostly we do a little bit of physical work, but we're mostly just talking, you know, and that that was also very p- powerful for me as well. I think you'd like him. Really? Oh, yeah. Do you still uh, talk to him? Yeah, I still talk to him. I don't okay. have like regular sessions with him, but but we chat. We send each other like inspirational That's interesting. Stuff. I mean, maybe I want to sit down with somebody like that one day because uh, even just on the show, maybe. Just oh, because yeah, so, yeah. That's interesting that, you know, that's a business that's that, that you get called upon that that you actually... It, it does work. I think sometimes we live in a world where if you don't get to experience or hear of this, you don't know of it. That's right. You know, yeah. and, 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 and I think that's special. But, uh, you know, um, is, is it true they used to carry ketchup in, in the early days to restaurants and put it on the tables? Oh sure, yeah, certainly. We, 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 we just leave it there, or just I mean, we would you know, we go and enjoy <laughs> it, and maybe you know, make it make it visible, but you know, not not necessarily like in mass, but we and we would definitely encourage, and some of our fans do bring the product out to restaurants that don't serve it there. I mean, I saw an Instagram story from you know one of our super fans who brought the ranch dressing to a pizza place and put it all over the pizza. Yeah, you know? I like that, and I yeah. Yeah, BYOR, bring your own ranch. You know, the the guy I was telling you about, Ikram, the co-founder of Venmo, uh-huh. he used to go to, like, places and say, hey, I'm going to pay for your food. And they're like, uh, dude, why are you picking up my... He's like, uh, if you want, he's like, you could download his app, you could Venmo me back the money. And they're like, yeah. He's like, all right, don't worry about it, the meal's on me. But it took a while for him. <laughs> he started to offer to pay for people's things by Venmo, you know, by paying for other people's meals in, in a restaurant. It was kind of like... I'm amazed that he would do it even if they didn't download it. I feel like yeah, yeah, yeah. What a giver! Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess I guess chalk that up to marketing yeah. dollars. Or, it, I or, mean, you got to try everything, right? At the early stage, you have to try absolutely everything. You know, your journey. It's funny because your journey is, uh, you know, special. And I say this to certain people because it's true, but it's just really beginning. 
you know, I'm sure that you've been able to do some things for yourself over the years. Is there something significant that uh, you felt that you were able to buy or do that you celebrated? Because I feel like I don't know if you celebrated, you know, these, these you know, milestones. Do you, do you feel that way? You know, I, certainly I celebrated them. Okay. De- de- definitely. And I, I love to celebrate. Okay. Uh, that's, see, that's yeah. what I like. That's I love I like. to celebrate. You and got that, the champagne out. Mimosas are on deck. I'm not, I'm not buying things to celebrate, okay. you know. Okay. And, and I think that the t- a couple things, I mean... um. One is, you know, I love to host dinner parties and, you know, treat people to dinner, treat treat people to food and, and create these gatherings. And I think it's important to make space for that. I think one of the big one of the big celebrations is that I, you know, there's there's the scarcity mindset and there's the abundance mindset. And the scarcity mindset is there's never enough. I don't have enough. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough respect. Our team's not big enough. We don't have the tools to do this. And then there's the abundance mindset, which will be the universe will provide. We have what we need. We 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 have a great team that can that can grow. We've got exactly what it takes to get where we want to go. And 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 we actually have. And I you know I personally have uh, the ability to take some time in my day to take some time off to take time to take a break, right? To take time to change the tape in my head and meet someone for a coffee or something like that. And if you're too much in the abundance mindset, then your head will be in the clouds. And if you're too much in the scarcity mindset, then you're living in fear all the time. And I, uh, you know, I have an 18 month old son now. Congratulations. Thank you. And he was born just a couple of months before the acquisition. And I think part of me was probably illogically saying like, Oh my God, you know, I've got a kid coming. Like, how am I going to like eventually like pay for college? And like, what do we have two of them? And, you know, uh, preschools and schools like so expensive in New York City and you know uh, all of these kind of questions of scarcity and I think that I probably didn't need the the selling the business to get there but uh, after I sold the business I was able to say like I'm gonna I'm I'm okay with with being able to provide for this my family for sure, the, for this sure. for this child and so it wasn't about like living a different lifestyle at all. It was it was really about like the mental switch in my head about going from scarcity to abundance, but I even that I think is just you know a, a figment of the imagination because it's it's your circumstances should not define your mindset of scarcity or abundance mm, you know mm. and I think just drop the gem of on course it. there are extreme cases right but I think that you know I've I've definitely witnessed people that are able to change their mindset without a change in external circumstances and I think that takes a lot of mindfulness and intentionality and it takes perspective and it takes experience um, but for me I think the biggest celebration that I had was was being able to say I'm going to fully embrace and really love every every bit of, of having this child in my life and not feel like I'm inadequate in being able to provide mm-hmm. that's now special the, now the trick is providing the time right my yeah. own time and that's that's the that's the big trick and that's what we talk presence about presence over presence there we go and I'm glad you're uh, adopted I'm that lifestyle on, I'm on the wagon <laughs> <laughs> and I appreciate you my man yeah. listen what's next for Sir Kensington's uh, what's on deck yeah well you know for the we are so nascent kind of in, in being known I'm sure a lot of your listeners have never heard of us before and that's going to change in the next couple of years. Sure. And so what's next for us is is really, you know, 
bringing more excellence to what we do and to being in more grocery stores, working with more restaurants, um, coming out with more exciting and interesting products. And I can't talk too much about exactly what those are. Only three people know about it. (laughs) More like 30, but yeah, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's about how do we stretch outside of our comfort zone, uh, and create things that are, that are dramatically different or that solve uh, either problems for people or are filling in gaps in the market for better food that are, that are currently underserved. Mm-hmm. So how do we bring integrity and charm sure. to ordinary and overlooked food in categories that we haven't yet? Sure. What's next for you also? You got any things you're going to be doing on the side? Is there any new businesses? Is there any new investments that you suggest? Or? Well, I certainly know investments I suggest. suggest. I'm not a licensed to do that. But, uh, you know, I really love teaching and coaching myself. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, again, there's so many interesting companies out there right now that I want to be really selective, but have an opportunity to take some time to mentor and nurture other entrepreneurs that I share an ethos with and that are, you know, making a change in, in, in the, the industries or in the societies that they're participating in or that they're contributing to. Uh, so for me, I want to, I want to really flex that muscle so that I can kind of give the gifts that I've received from mentors and from investors. You know, you dropped a lot of gems this episode. I don't know if you even know, but when you listen back, you'll realize. Um, Because sometimes when we're doing it, you don't realize it. It's kind of like your journey. You don't realize how special it is until you start telling it, you know, or until somebody else listens to it. Because you're living it, right? Keep in mind. Um, Young guy with a startup or even somebody who, whatever it is, somebody who wants to be an entrepreneur or is an entrepreneur struggling What's some advice you would give them? Um, Advice to an entrepreneur? Yeah. I think, you know, number one is bias towards action is do. Mm. You know, Uh, just start building something and just start testing it out and see what people think of it. That's step one. And step two Mm -hmm. is have a devotion to your long-term vision but respond to people's feedback and be open to hearing people's feedback. When we started, our ketchup was like chunky and it was more brown and it tasted really earthy. We had different ingredients in it. And if we had just like stuck to our vision like an artist, then we would really only be making something for ourselves. And an artist only makes something for themselves. A prostitute only does something for money, <laughs> Right. So where do you find the balance between artist and prostitute? Craftsman. Mm. I think as an entrepreneur, you have to think about how do I be a craftsman and find the balance between doing something just for money and doing something for myself and for mm. the art of it. And what a craftsman does is they, they, they hone what they do to provide value, to, to create something that solves someone's problem and that's useful, but they do it with care and they do it with finesse and they do it with artistry and an attention to detail, something that they can be proud of. I think that's something that the sure. Japanese businesses and Scandinavian businesses do especially well. But I think that that's the, that's the mentor, that I, the, the, the model that I would suggest for an entrepreneur is don't do just something you know, to get rich and don't just do something for, for your own enjoyment and entertainment. Create something that's both useful and, and also is something you're proud of. Um, and you got to be open to feedback in order sure. to doing that. Got to be open-minded. Yeah. Any books you suggest before you go? Oh, man. I love reading. No. So, I hit him with. So, I mean, have you read Sapiens? No. 
Probably first and foremost book I would recommend people read is Sapiens by mm-hmm. Noah Yuval Harari, which is about how uh, the fundamental difference from other species that human beings have is the ability to tell and understand stories. Mm-hmm. And we have organized our society around stories. Political boundaries on a map, that, those are just stories that we believe, right? The, the brand of Sir Kensington's, right, or the brand of anything, that is really just a story that people believe. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, legal contracts, money, all these things are stories. So I would I would highly recommend that because that's a very that's a very powerful book. If you um, can kind of put some of that to work, I'm reading uh, Ther- the Theranos book right now, Bad Blood, uh, mm-hmm. which is which is you know obviously riveting and is a tale of intrigue. Um, can't can't put that one down, uh, but you know that's obviously a little salacious. What other great? Oh, and and also you know it was. Really, it really struck me uh, when Anthony Bourdain passed away. Mm. And I think he was someone that, you know, in the world of food, but really in the world of culture, in the world of people and ideas, he was someone that taught Americans not to be afraid of the outside world. And he was also able to, uh, you know, teach the outside world not to be afraid of Americans in the experiences that he had. And I think he lived incredibly without fear and lived, you know, brilliantly uh, and was really important for shaping America's curiosity in global food. I I recommend Kitchen Confidential, his first book. Yeah. Beautifully done. Um, and then if you like that, Medium Raw, another one of his books is is another great one. So I think those are that's a that's a collection of book I would I would highly, highly recommend. You know, uh, Sir Kensington on Instagram, Sir Kensington dot com. Sir Kensington's. Sir yeah, Kensington's Sir Kensington's on Instagram uh, and SirKensingtons.com. And at probably mostly all your grocery uh, places that you go and shop. Anywhere fine groceries are sold. Internet, so listen, let me tell you something. First off, I, I really enjoyed you being here, Scott. More importantly, I thank you for bringing, uh, you know, flavor into condiments. <laughs> oh, my for pleasure. Kind of, kind of reviving them, or should I say evolving them, you know? So thank you for that, you know? Internet's the one and only. Scott Norton. Thank you, Premium P. Take care, buddy. Internets, if you enjoyed that episode, I want you to email me at thepremiumpeachshow at gmail.com. Again, that email is thepremiumpeachshow at gmail.com. Let me know what you thought. And listen, all my advertisers out there, all my big businesses, my small businesses, whoever, a friend, a store, you want to advertise on the Premium Peach Show? Email me at thepremiumpeachshow at gmail.com and let's get working. Okay, make sure you subscribe, rate, leave a comment on all streaming platforms or podcasts. Tell a friend to tell a friend, and we'll see you next episode. Cheer.